For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You may be seated. So we are at the end of Galatians. We have been going through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia for the past year. And we started in January. We're finishing today. I don't know if you know, but providentially, we are on a very special day. Anyone know what today is, holiday-wise? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Halloween <laughs> and Reformation Day. Halloween. The word Halloween, I think some of you know, comes from the word All Hallows' Eve, and that refers to a celebration in the church's calendar in the Middle Ages of All Saints' Day. And so on October 31st was the eve where you remember all the saints, which is Halloween, why we have that holiday. But it's also marked by an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther 504 years ago to this day. He went to a church in Wittenberg in Germany and he nailed on that front door 95 theses against the church saying the gospel that you had preached and lived for the past few centuries is not the gospel that is in the Bible. And essentially that the church had forgotten what is the true gospel of Christ. And in his commentary to the Galatians, Martin Luther goes to exposit to explain exactly what this gospel is, which is what we've been doing for the past year is going through and understanding what it is that we Christians really believe the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. Well, today marks this last part of this wonderful letter that we've been exploring together. And I think in many ways, Paul, what he does at the end of the letter is he gives a very quick summation, in essence, of what he has explored in this letter in these past six chapters. So what I'd like to do is look at this summation by focusing on two parts. One is verse 15, what I would say is the new perspective of being a new creation, which he talks about in verse 15. And then secondly is the new character of what it means to be a new creation, as we see in verses 16 through 18. So the first is a new perspective. Second is a new character. The new perspective that we gain in verse 15 as Paul writes again, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, that's sort of founded on what Paul previously spoke of. That is to say that the world is crucified to me and I to the world in light of the cross. So our view of life, of the world, changes when we understand truly why Jesus died on a cross. And then Paul begins to say, well, if we really get this, and if we understand then that we are a new creation, then neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So I'd like to explore what that means once again, because that's essentially a reiteration of chapter 5, verse 6, which we've also talked about. 
First, to understand what it means when Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, he's essentially saying personal righteousness and morality count for nothing. It has no value to it. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day couldn't understand that because they were all about trying to perform or to abide by the law, by abide by certain moral ethical standards for God to say, you're a good believer of me. You, you worship me rightly. And so the Pharisees did all they could to be zealous for the law. And Jesus describes those same Pharisees this way. Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And that word hypocrites describes well what Jesus was referring to when he says you're whitewashed tombs, meaning you look a certain way outside, but internally, you're actually a deceiver. You're a fake. You're a phony. And so for Paul, when he's confronting these false teachers who are coming into the churches in Galatia and they're teaching well, in order to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be a Jewish person. You need to abide by Jewish custom as well. And Paul's saying, no, that's absolutely untrue. You don't need to do anything at all except have faith in Christ alone. And for us today, we might think, well, we're not like that. We're not Jews who are trying to get you know, the people to believe in Judaism first in order to be a Christian. That's not what we do today, but at the core, we do believe so often that to be a Christian means believe in Jesus, yes, but also we should do something else as well. well what are some of these something else's that we should do? One example is that we should do religious works. And when we do these religious works, God looks upon us with favor. I remember going to a Catholic church when I was young. And, and I would go to Mass, and there would be on the sides of the sanctuary uh, a bunch of candles. If you've ever been to a cathedral like Notre Dame or St. Patrick's Cathedral in, in uh, New York City, you'll see there's a bunch of candles, and there's a little box in the front. In that box, you're supposed to put a quarter or a couple of bills into it. Then you light the candle. And by lighting the candle, you pray over someone whom you want, you want God to do something. You want him to um, prov provide his favor upon a business that just opened or something along those lines, some sort of favor. And the idea is that I do something a little bit and God sort of acts in response to that. Now, mo we're in a Protestant evangelical church. We don't have boxes with candles and money where you slot in. But in every way, evangelical Christians act exactly the same as a Catholic. We do this every time we think in our heart of hearts that there is something that I do that makes God happy with me. The fact that you're here on this day, on Sunday, you woke up. I mean, granted, it's 11 o'clock, so maybe it's okay now to wake up. Or some of you, you would sleep till 1 p.m. Um, but on this day, you woke up and you say, well, because I did this, God owes me favor. Or maybe if you're a parent, you've raised your children in a certain type of environment, home, 
your thought is, well, because I've did this, God owes me well-behaved children. There's always this quid pro quo. I do something for God, God pays me back. I tell you that that's no different than putting a quarter in a box, lighting a candle and saying, God, I'm doing this for you, you do that. The only difference is the, the mode is different, but the heart is the same. So if you are a parent who raises your child in a Christian home, you've brought them to children's ministry, they've learned Bible verses, they heard Bible stories about Noah and about Daniel in the lion's den, and then they go to you and you, you tell, say, you have to go to youth ministry and you do that. Maybe you sent your kids to a Christian school. Maybe you homeschooled your kids. And so now they become adults and they completely turn away from the Lord. Is our heart's tendency to think, God, I've done all of this. Shouldn't they at the very least be following you? Like, I've done this for you. How could you pay me back with a rebellious child who has no desire for you? There is that heart. Maybe it's also a lack of mercy and grace and forgiveness when someone injures us. Maybe someone we look upon with disdain because they're so evil. Maybe look at our society and we're so angry with our world and we say, the world is crumbling. Regardless of what you believe politically, socially, economically, we get so angry when we read the news and we say, you know, they're terrible. But the instinct, without us realizing it is, they are terrible. I'm okay. I'm actually pretty good. There's a story that Jesus told, the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. They both go pray in the temple. The, ta uh, the Pharisee says, oh God, I tithe, keep the law. I, I'm here worshiping you. And then he closes his prayer by saying, but thank God I'm not like that guy over there. I'm not like Sung over there. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry to call you. I called out someone in the first worship. Felt like I had to call out that person. And, you know, whereas that person over there is saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So me, the Pharisee, who says I'm like this because externally I look holy. I look righteous, but that person over there is looking at themselves and seeing their sinfulness. And when we have that heart, that person over there is messed up. That is no different than slotting that coin in. It's the same heart. I do something good and God owes me a favor. Or perhaps when you go through a trial, we all will, because in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. We also have death in this world. So trials will come. In some fashion or form, they will come your way. When you go through that trial or suffering, is there ever an instinct to think, God, you're so unfair. And I've done so much for you. Look at my life. I've lived morally. I've been a good dad. I've provided. I've been a mother who has sacrificed. I've been a friend, faithful. Why should this suffering happen to me? You're not fair. You're not good. See, that heart betrays what we truly believe. And no matter whether we think, well, actually, I am a sinner, I'm, I'm unrighteous, but if we respond in all these different ways, we really miss out in seeing what our hearts truly feel, which is that there is something I am doing 
to contribute to my righteousness, to my goodness, to my morality. And God owes me. He must respond to that goodness. And if he doesn't, then he's not merciful, he's not good, and he's surely not God. That's the Pharisee heart. That's the heart that says, where Paul says, they count circumcision as something. But the gospel, the true gospel says, circumcision counts for nothing. Not for anything. On the flip side of that, also is true, is that uncircumcision doesn't count either. Meaning personal unrighteousness and a lack of morality, they also count for nothing. We've spoke much about the world and its pleasures last week and how limited they are. They're limited because we die. And no matter how great of a life you live, you will eventually lose that life. Just go on a vacation and you'll see no matter how wonderful the vacation, it always ends. You have to say goodbye to loved ones. It happens. This week, we have a pet bunny. We always let him out. We, am not, we, you know, we would always let him out. We let him out too many times. He got lost. He's, not, he's now gone forever, possibly. And goodbyes are a part of life. Death. Many of you bought dogs during COVID. Got dogs, right? You know, I, I, I don't want to be morbid, but here's the reality. That dog will not live forever. It will end its life. Every pet, every person, every loved one. This is our world. It's a world of goodbyes and sorrows. No matter how wonderful the relationship, no matter how much money you have, no matter how wealthy or powerful, politically, socially, it always ends. There's always an end to it. And it's always miserable. Death, as we spoke about last week, is grotesque. It, it doesn't matter how you die. It's terrible. It's horrible. And every pleasure fades. That's how this life is. You know, if you look at little young kids, one thing you ever, if you notice, if you observe carefully, young children, very young children, I have yet to see any young kids ever before they're about to run around stretch. Have you ever seen that? Like go down and do some calf stretches and you just don't ever see it. Why? They are limber. They are youthful. I remember when I was 20 years old, still young, still youthful. Um, I was playing volleyball, jumped up in the air, came crumbling down because I herniated a disc. And after that, I had to stretch every time I did some sort of exercise or some sort of athletic event. And then after a while, in my 30s and 40s, we, a bunch of the guys, even in here, we used to play soccer quite often. And I'd ra we'd rally together a game, and you know, it's a lot of fun, a lot of running. But one day, what happened for me is that I, I felt my Achilles slowly pulling, you know, that, that feeling of, uh-oh, one more time, and it's going to snap. And when it snaps, I'm going to be exactly like, some of you who have experienced this in this very room. And, you know, it's a year out, and I thought, I'm not doing that. So now I go walking, <laughs> hiking. You know, now the, 
the older aged uh, exercise of the day. And now my feet are hurting more. Um, just little creaks. Every time I walk down the steps, there's a crack. Every time my knee cracks. I don't know if any of you experienced this. You know, your body breaks down. Life breaks down. Atlanta Braves pitcher, Charlie Morton. Uh, and if you ever, or I know barely any of you are following the World Series. Me too. I'm not following it either. But the, uh, Charlie Morton is, he's the ace of the Braves pitching staff. And in the first game with either the, I don't know, the, either the first or second batter, he hits a line drive. It ricochets off his leg, breaks his leg. He's out for the whole series. I mean, think about it. This guy, from the littlest of kids, is, you know, some of you have kids who are in baseball. I mean, imagine a t-baller and going all the way up to the World Series as the ace finally gets there and then breaks his leg and everything is gone in a moment. That's how quickly this world and its pleasures fade. One minute you are elated, the next second crushed and despairing. It happens in a moment, in a car accident, in a diagnosis, in a crash of the market. Everything fades in the blink of an eye. It's why St. Augustine, he writes this in his confessions. I was in misery, and misery is the state of every lost soul overcome by friendship with mortal things and lacerated when they are lost. Then the soul becomes aware of the misery, which is its actual condition, even before it loses its stem. You know, it's when you are living for this world and you become friends with mortal things, things that fade, eventually when they are lost, which they will be, you're going to be miserable. And it's a terrible place to be. Friendship with anything or anyone in this world is always going to eventually lead to a place of loss, of grieving, of sorrow. And so you can think like Augustine did, that I can do whatever, I'm just going to live it up for whatever I have, to be the Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. That's, that's great until you do die, and then you say, why did I do that? Why did I live that way? We always think the moment is so, so critical. Students, um, have you ever wished that there were no rules in your household, that your parents just simply said, you could do whatever you want. You might think that that, is, that would be utopia. That would be the best of all things. But it is not. It is not. Well, parents, have you ever tried taking your phone, uh, the phone away from some of your kids for a day or two? What happens in that household? World War III. It is death to that person. It's as though you were taking a knife and gutting their gut out and removing a kidney and a liver. And they were saying, how dare you? And suddenly the world is crumbling. It's at its end. But I find that what happens is that where so many students, you're placing your value and hope in a toy rather than in a real relationship. I remember the days where, you know, we didn't have phones like that. I am sounding like a really old person, I know, when you do this, but I'm going to take a chance here. You know, when I was your age, when I was in high school, our phones had coils on them. 
you know, we would pick it up and press the numbers. And then call waiting came in. You know, press that click and you say, oh, hold on one second. You get really excited about that. And then cordless phones came in. That was probably the most of it, the most technology. But you know what's interesting? I was having a conversation with somebody and they had noted a few things. One is that in today's day and age, it is, there is more loneliness, more despair, more, more sorrow than ever before, more people on antidepressants than ever before. In a day and age where you can call up someone, see their face in an instant, text someone, communicate so quickly, and yet there's more loneliness. Well, here's the thing is, when we had a phone, you couldn't find that immediate satisfaction. Sometimes you got the busy signal or whatever it might be, but you always generally use the phone to try to meet up with somebody. You actually had to physically go because the phone was not as informative as it could be. And so you actually had to engage somebody. You had to meet up together. There's less and less meeting up together. I mean, COVID makes it worse, but there's less. And students, it's so easy to get sucked into this world and its media and to say, have that define who you are. But it never lasts. It never lasts. And if you cannot give up your phone for a day, a couple of days, then that phone is your God. That phone matters to you more than anyone else. And if you become angry at your parents who are trying in some way to say, hey, you know what? There are more things important than finding out the scores of a team or to find out what someone is writing about, the new the party that they went to or the type of clothing that they wear. If you can't see that that is literally controlling your life and you're addicted to it, then if, God forbid, something should ever happen to your parents and they should get into a car accident and they should no longer be able to return home, that phone will have become essentially something that you love more dearly than someone who you truly love and you won't understand that at all. This is our world is that we have traded in the most precious and most valuable for everything that is secondary. It's not just teenagers. It's all of us. And we, have, we are settling for something that does not satisfy, that will fade, that will die, that will be gone. And misery is the end goal of that life. The cross of Christ changes that perspective. Paul says, when you believe in Christ and the cross, you're a new creation. You're actually free. You've been set free. And what happens is that the cross changes you, not necessarily outwardly. It does outwardly, but first, always inwardly. It impacts the way you view the world. The way you view the values of things that you think are so critical or not. Your phone, your career, your pursuits, your hobbies, your entertainments, all of these become lesser. It's not that there's no place for them. It's that you always prioritize them rightly. And prioritizing things rightly in this world, making God utmost, always flows down to having the greatest joy for everything that we experience in this world. God is not trying to rob us of joy. He's trying to increase it. 
But you'll never get to that place until you have rightly the foundational perspective of that joy. So what he does then, and we're, we're told in Romans 12 too, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There has to be a change of our mind, a transformation, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now not only does this gospel and the cross give us a new perspective, it also changes our character according to verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This rule that we walk by is the cross. We've been set free. We are righteous not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's the rule. And when we have that, what is the fruit of that? Peace. Peace with God. Peace with others. Here's why. Because if my identity is no longer rooted on what I obtain, do, or what people think about me, and only and solely by Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me, then I know God loves me fully, and I don't ever have to doubt that. And no matter which friend group I'm a part of, I'm still loved. I don't have to be controlled by what other people think of me. Therefore, I can actually initiate forgiveness, reconciliation, um, I can be friendly towards others, even people who aren't kind to me. That's a peace that passes understanding, as Paul writes about in Philippians. Also mercy. I can be compassionate. I can be kind. I can show people grace. When you walk by this rule, the rule that truly gives you life, that you are loved, not because of righteous things you've done, but because of his mercy, you're a new creation. You're a new character. And that just really impacts the way you live and think. You're less critical of others. You're more compassionate. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 35? There's that servant who's forgiven, let's say, trillions of dollars. It's just some unfathomable, unthinkable number of debt. And he's so forgiven by this really gracious a person whom he owns this debt to, and then he goes out and finds someone who owes him $20,000. That's a lot of money, but it's still, relative to the trillions, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And yet he still shakes this guy down and throws him into prison. You read that parable, and at least I do, and I think, I get so angry at that guy. I say, why, why would you do that? How could you be so foolish? How can you be so blind to your own hypocrisy, your own forgiveness? And yet, me who feels that way will go out and say, I can't forgive this person because they've hurt me so bad. There's no way I can. It's, it's as if this was never there to begin with. Do I really believe this or not? And I can't say I believe this and then do exactly the opposite. You know why? Because then I am just like that person. So it's truly a caricature, this idea. What, how God, well, he must be laughing. Sadly, we still do not understand the cross. If we hold back forgiveness and kindness and mercy to people who hurt us, we don't understand the cross. We don't get it. We still don't see that we're that unmerciful servant. 
before God, then, if I don't really show that I have been transformed, I am changed by the cross, then I will always think there's something in me that makes me righteous. It's not Jesus. It's me. It's all me. But new character comes in when we do trust in Christ, when we do believe that Jesus has loved me and gave himself for me, that he paid the penalty of my sin. The Apostle Paul understood this well when he writes to Timothy, tells Timothy in his letter, and he says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or I am the most greatest sinner of all. Now, think with me who Paul is. Paul was a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew God's word. He was zealous for keeping the law. He did everything to be moral and righteous. And everything he did, even against Christians, was because he was so zealous for God's righteousness. That same Paul is the one who's saying, I'm the worst of sinners. And you might be thinking, but there seems to be a disconnect between, because he lived so righteously for God, religiously, zealous. But he says, I'm the worst. This is exactly what troubles us when, let's say, there's a testimony day. And let's say I were to say, all right, five people are going to give a testimony about their conversion, about their faith in Christ. First person comes up as a man and says, I've killed somebody. I was in prison. And he has tattoos everywhere on his face and says, I was a white supremacist. And I came to know Christ and I believe. And the second person comes up and says, I was a drunkard. I, I couldn't stay off. I just, every day I was just completely demolished. And I, I was abusive, angry. Third person comes up, I was a gambler, gambled everything. Fourth person comes up and says, I was an adulteress. I, I was unfaithful. I abandoned my family. Now you're a churchgoer. And some of you have this testimony. You're a Christian. You grew up in a Christian home. Or uh, you grew up in a Christian home. You went to children's ministry, did all these things. You're the fifth person to come up. You heard all these. What's your first instinct? Oh, I, I, I feel like I don't have something to say. I'm not so bad like that. Isn't that our instinct? I'm not as bad as those people. Those people are, they really look bad. But me, I... I grew up in a Christian home. I, I studied hard. I, you know, I, uh, I don't. I mean, maybe I cursed a couple of times and did this or that. But I became a Christian somehow. I believed. I went to youth group and raised my hand. I said, "I want to believe in Jesus." And the thought is that those testimonies are really people who understand Christ, but me, I don't, because I'm actually pretty good. So therefore. Maybe it's not as vivid, or perhaps it's, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. But Paul lived the life of someone who went to church every Sunday, grew up in a Christian home, was actually memorizing Bible verses, got the plaque that said they memorized the most verses in class, went to a Christian school. Here's how it works. Paul is saying in Galatians, neither circumcision, meaning the legalist who thinks doing right things for God, and looks holy, 
or uncircumcision, meaning the licentious rebel against God who looks rebellious, neither of them count for anything. The only thing that counts is what Christ has done. Your new creation because Jesus has bought you. And Jesus' blood on that cross shed is equally for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, for the legalist and the licentious person, for the religious person and the irreligious person. And lest we think, oh, well, I grew up in a Christian home and I did all these things. I look pretty good. I'm not as bad as that. those people. You're missing the point of the gospel itself. If you really examine your heart, who are the people who were the most rebellious when Jesus was in this world? When he was walking and doing ministry in those three years, who are the ones who turned to him? The woman who was caught in adultery. The woman at the well who had multiple spouses. Um, you had people who were tax collectors, rebels, traitors. Just everyone who responded to Christ were the so-called sinners. But then you had the Pharisees, those who were the most religious. They were the ones at Jesus' trial who would hit Jesus in the face and then say, who hit you, son of man? It was the religious people who actually were the most rebellious against God. The woman looked sinful. The Pharisee looked holy. But who knew Christ more? Until we are able to see ourselves as unrighteous, as any other sinner in this world, we will never understand the gospel of grace. We cannot be a new creation until we look deep into our hearts and see that by nature, I turn away from the Lord. And I am not saved because I'm a pastor or I'm a missionary. You're not saved because you came here on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. You're not saved because you take communion. You are a new creation because Jesus Christ gave his life for you. That's it. And until we see that you are, you and I, we are equally before God in need of God's mercy and grace as the most heinous of people in all this world. Until we get to that place where, as John Newton says, as a former slave trader, amazing grace, how sweet this sound that saved a wretch like me. We have to see it's not just murderers and drug addicts and adulterers who are saved wretches. My friends, if you've gone to church your whole life, and if you've been religious and faithful, you're a saved wretch too. You just don't look like it externally, but internally, if we could peel away and look, put the spiritual x-ray of God on our hearts, we would look no different than the tax collector, the adulterer, the drug addict, the murderer. That might be offensive to some of you, but that's offensive. The cross is offensive, but it's meant to bring us to our knees and to say, you need a savior. And until you get to that place, you will never understand why Jesus Christ gave his life, what the cross is all about. Today marks, again, that day where Martin Luther was hammering with just sort of this thunderous boom to all the church to say, 
You are not saved because you're the Pope or because you're a cardinal or because you built a cathedral or you spent a lot of money in doing all these things. Nothing, none of that saves you. Save the cross of Christ. And so when he posted that, those messages on that door and saying, you need a savior, you need the true savior, only then will you understand why we are here today, why we need Christ most of all. I want to close with just a few quotes from Martin Luther's commentary to Galatians because I think it just says so well, it just summarizes everything we've been speaking about for this past year. First, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. You know why? Because we want to do something for God. We always think, because it goes against our very nature, we always think we do something for God. He makes, he looks at us favorably because we're really good moms and dads, really good students. We work hard, we obey. That's never the case. All we have is grace, the cross. That's it. That's all we have. And we just stand on that cross. Second from Luther, we are not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. The cross reminds us that sins are really bad, but we never despair from them, and Satan cannot accuse us enough of them. I love how John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he describes Christian. It's an allegory. And when he is first saved, he, he's told that his wife and his children, they're the ones who are saying to Christian, don't go that way. Don't follow Christ. Don't do that. And he closes his ears. He puts his fingers in his ears and he says, no, 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 no. I cannot listen. I cannot listen. Remember eternal life. Remember eternal life. Because once you turn to Christ, everything within you will say, no, you, you, it's not that you don't need Jesus. He'll, he'll, the voice will come to say, yeah, that's good that you believe in Jesus. But you know, you have your career as well. You have your family to take care of. Make sure you take care of them as much, if not more. It's always Jesus and that's Satan's greatest tactic. It's not forget about Jesus because he knows to do that so quickly, it won't happen. No, he's much cleverer than that. It's get you to think about something also with Jesus. And slowly that also will just melt Jesus away in your heart. So that's Luther's point here. Thirdly, what good are the works of all men and all the pains of the martyrs in comparison with the pains of the Son of God dying on the cross so that there was not a drop of his precious blood but it was all shed for your sins. If you could properly evaluate this incomparable price, you would throw all your ceremonies and vows, works and merits and careers and your fantasy football teams and your phones. You'd throw away your reputations. You'd throw it all into a trash can. If you could really understand the incomparable price of the cross, everything would be thrown away in a trash can. What awful presumption to imagine that there is any work good enough to pacify God when to pacify God required the invaluable price of the death and blood of his son, his own and only son. There is nothing you can do to make God happy with you. Nothing. God will never be happy with you if you try to do something for him. 
God is always happy with you because of the invaluable work of what Jesus has already done for you. And when you really know that, you're set free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. You don't have to be special. You are special. You don't have to be loved. You are loved. You don't have to be respected. You are respected. You have respect. You have dignity. You have worth, inestimable worth. You are loved. And there was a high, a high cost for that. And it was the cross of Christ. May you never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you with much thanksgiving for this wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We come to this cross, O oh Lord, today, remembering that there is not a single thing, O oh Father, that you look at upon us that we think that we can do that makes you love us more. Nothing we do. But you love us so much because of what Jesus, your son, has already done for us. May we never devalue the cross by trying to obtain favor by what we do. But instead, may our works always be a fruit, a fruit of faith, a fruit of the work of your son, Jesus, at that cross. In Jesus' name we pray.